Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the message. For more in-depth content and answers to questions submitted during the sermon, check out our podcast called Postscript. You can find it on iTunes or on our website at faithbridge.org forward slash podcast. Howdy! Good to see you guys. Hope Thanksgiving was awesome. Merry Christmas. Yes, it's about time to start saying that, right? We're about a month out. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, I, if you don't have a Bible, I think they're passing them out. It might be good to look at one because we're actually just going to walk down the text together. I'm going to read it. Uh, we'll pray and then move through it. Uh, we were in Philippians last time I was here. And we'll jump in and, and pick up a couple more uh, key ideas from Philippians um, and I think tie it into the holiday season, right? As we get into December, I think that'll work. Um, so turn there if you've got it, Philippians 3. Uh, last announcement I'll make before we start that too, just speaking of Advent and the arrival of uh, baby boys, uh, my wife and I are expecting one of our own. Um, so yeah, so just thought I'd let you know. Uh, we don't think he's the Christ or anything like that, but... Um, <laughs> He will be a flawed, flawed man. But we're excited about having a little baby boy in May. So it looks like uh, May, uh, we got a little dude uh, coming into our world of women. Yeah, so uh, it'll be fun. Uh, Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Uh, let me read this to you. <clears throat> Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these few minutes around your word. I pray, God, as we enter a season where, Lord willing, the, the culture 
is more open to aim its eyes at the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I pray you would help us understand, God, what it is to intersect with him, what, what he wants, what you want, how you want us to engage Jesus. And so I pray for this morning, God, give us a vision of what our life and what our conversation and what our connection to Jesus looks like. I don't even know if we think about that. What's it meant to be like to know him? And so give us a vision, God, of, of what pleases you and of what doesn't. And I pray, God, that we would, we would run in the path you set before us. And I just want to invite you, if you're willing, take a minute and, and pray and ask him. Say, God, please teach me something right now. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in college, there was a park on the campus of A&M that on pretty days, it was where all the girls would go to study and lay out. So it was also where all the guys would go to hit on those girls, right? And what they would typically do is they'd bring a dog, preferably the cutest one you could find. Uh, because as you walk the dog, girls would go, oh, he's so cute, and pet him. You'd be like, yeah, he's adorable, like me, right? And uh, conversation would ensue. Uh, and I had a particular roommate that wanted to be one of those guys because he wanted to date one of those girls, so he needed one of those dogs. And as he explained this vision to us, we said, don't do this to an animal. You can barely feed yourself. Don't bring a dog into your crazy. But uh, he was undaunted. Uh, and he went out and he bought a gorgeous animal. And I say animal because she was three-fourths wolf, <laughs> which I don't even know how you do that. We found out later that's not legal. Um, but there she was, and she was indeed gorgeous. And so I'll never forget uh, the first sunny day came around and he came just sort of prancing into the living room in his shorts with a little uh, leash in one hand, tennis ball in the other, and he said, we're going to the park. <laughs> and uh, they took off together and it wasn't that long after. I hear the door open and I see the dog just kind of trot in and sit down and then I see my roommate stumble in, face flushed, and just collapse into the chair next to me. And I go, what happened to you? Uh, and he began to recount to me the story of what took place at the park. They showed up, and sure enough, all the gorgeous women were there, right? And so he unleashes the dog, takes the tennis ball, and just kind of lobs it out there. And the dog takes off and runs past the ball into the bushes. And so he's like, okay, that's not quite what I was looking for. But uh, as soon as that happened, he hears someone next to him go, man, that is a lovely dog. And he turns, and it was like an old guy, uh, which was not really the attention he was looking for, just kind of a dog lover. So uh, he's like, that's fine. So they talk about dogs for a second. And uh, while they're talking about it, suddenly, from across the field of dreams, <laughs> he hears screaming. And he turns over and he sees his dog and she's running back towards him through the field, carrying in her mouth, not the tennis ball, but a cute little bunny uh, that was bleeding and not dead. And the wolf had come up with a new game called let's throw the bunny in the air and when it lands and struggle for life, pounce on it and rip into it some more. And so all of a sudden in an instant, 
what was supposed to be his dream day became a nightmare as girls are now crying and burying their face in the shoulders of others to hide their face from the carnage. And so he had to run out there, finish off the bunny, grab the wolf, and go running away in shame, right? Uh, to tell us the story, at which point we cracked up laughing at him. And uh, not long after that, he gave the wolf away to a beautiful family of four. Now, question. What went wrong? What went wrong? Yeah, he brought a wolf. Easy question. Look like a dog. Four legs like a dog. Fur like a dog. But it's not a dog. And so not only did it fail when he needed it to come through, it was destructive. Now, why tell you that? Because there is a way of doing spirituality that's just like that. That it looks like the real thing, but it's not. And if you subscribe to it, not only will it fail you where you need it to come through, it's destructive. And that's what Paul's here to do is to warn us about the counterfeit as opposed to the real, right? If I could illustrate it a different way, I would say it this way. If I was to ask you, mm, what does it look like to be spiritual? What does it look like to be a good Christian or to be godly? What does that mean, to be a godly man or a godly woman? I, I would guess if I asked you that, what many of you do is what I think most people would do, and that is you would start to come up with a list of things that, that are true of a godly person's life. If I said, what's a godly person? You'd go, uh, they're people that don't do certain things. They, they don't go to certain places. They, they don't talk like some other people talk. They don't do some of the other things people do. And then you come up with a list of maybe things they do, but they do attend certain services. They do read certain books. They do memorize things and serve in different ways. And you'd come up with a list of all kinds of stuff they don't do and all kinds of stuff that they do, that if they fulfill that list, that's a godly person. That's a good Christian. That's a spiritual person. And that's the idea, right? But there's a problem with this. If this is your version of spirituality, if you decide to make spirituality trying to live up to a list, one of two things is going to happen. Number one is at some point you're going to quit because you're going to get to a place where you try to live up to a standard and you can't, and it's frustrating. Many of you know what this was like. Maybe you grew up in a home where you, there was a list of spiritual rules of a way you're supposed to act to be a good Christian girl or a good Christian boy, and you found it stifling. And so what happened? You got your freshman year of college, and you realized, I don't have to follow this religion anymore, and you ditch it. And over and over again in the public sphere, you hear that story from Katy Perry's to Brad Pitt's to many of your college roommates. People say, man, I followed religion. It was stifling to me trying to live up to these expectations, so I just dumped them. Or other people, maybe you're still trying and you are constantly swinging on the pendulum between pride at your accomplishment and despair because you can't live up to it. That's one option. You'll ditch it because it gets old. Second option, which I think is much scarier, is you'll have a list of what it means to be spiritual and you'll keep your list and you'll live up to your own expectations and you'll be very proud of your accomplishments and you'll look down on us who lack that kind of discipline and you'll become very arrogant and your heart will shrink and you'll be very cold. 
And here's the fact I want to get across this morning. None of that is Christianity. None of it. I could illustrate it this way. When I got married to Donna, I took on a new title, a new role of husband, right? And if you were to ask me, what's a good husband, you could come up with a list. You could say, oh, Ben, you're meant to be a good husband. Let's come up with a list. Good husbands uh, take out the trash. Good husbands uh, pay the bills. Good husbands defend the family from wild animal attacks, right? That's not one you typically have to do, but I think every husband knows if a wild animal ever attacks a family, you know, that's, that's mine. You know that that's, that's yours. You can put those on the list. But when Donna and I got married, that wonderful day, our wedding ceremony, all our friends there, we knit our lives together. Let me say this. When we ran out of that church while everyone celebrated and jumped in that car and drove off together, we did not drive off to some boardroom somewhere and start making a list. We didn't. We went to Jamaica. (laughs) And we got to go to Hawaii, and we've gone hiking together, and we go on dates together, and we went on walks together, and we sit and talk with one another, and I press in to know her and love her. That's what I meant to do as husband, to know her and cherish her and enjoy her. That's what I do. And I found something to be true. The more I pursue knowing Donna deeper, the more I love Donna. And the more I love Donna, the more I start to naturally do things that would be on a list if I was making a list. So yes, I take out the trash because I don't want my baby handling garbage. Yes, I want to provide for her. Yes, I'd give my life for her. But not because I signed some contract early on of, okay, husband will do A, B, and C, and I fulfilled my end of the contract. Therefore, I'm a fantastic husband. That's not the point. Do you see the difference? It makes all the difference in the world. Am I pursuing obeying a standard or am I pursuing loving a person? Is the goal of spirituality moral performance or is the mission to love a man? That's the difference. And Paul will lay out the counterfeit that's very true in his day and ours and contrast it with the real. And I just want to walk you through it in the text. In verse 1, he tells us, as he sets up the contrast in the first three verses, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Let me say this over us today. Christianity is about the pursuit of joy. The Christian life is the pursuit of joy. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend. He said, you know it is your Christian duty to be as happy as you possibly can. What makes a world of difference is in what object do you pursue your joy? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Pursue your joy in an intimate connection with him. That's the Christian life. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me. He says, I don't mind hammering this over and over again. This is the point. He says, and it's safe for you. If you get away from this way of living Christianity, of pursuing intimacy with Jesus, you're going to enter into dangerous ground. And then he starts to warn them about people who make religion and to just sort of slavishly obeying a list. And so he tells him three times in verse two to look out, look out, look out. Beware of people who will do this. And yet he'll call them, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. You go, what does that mean? 
Well, back then, as you see in the context, what Paul was wrestling with was a group of people who decided, we're going to enter into the religious world and we're going to come up with a list of things that religious people do and then follow the list. And if I follow the list, I'm better than you. Who doesn't? And the list they had formed was rooted in the Old Testament. They were Gentile people who had taken parts of the Old Testament and kind of pulled them out and come up with a way of, if I obey some of these external actions that are in the Old Testament law, then I'm holy before God. And so they were people that were becoming proud and becoming arrogant because of their religious accomplishments. I know none of us in here have ever heard about people doing that. Just try to imagine people who get prideful and shallow and not very loving because they pursue their religious uh, advancement, right? I don't think it's hard to imagine. I think for some of us, that's why you ran from Christianity because you felt like that's all it was, was people putting on a show, trying to live up to some rules and you went out, right? Or others of you, you think it is a show, putting on a, a list of rules, accomplishing them and you get really angry at the people around you who aren't doing a good job of it, Right? And so a lot of us know what it's like to live here. And Paul looks at this group that's doing it with the Old Testament law, and he says, watch out for this. This is danger. And what's interesting is he's attacking them, and he does it with name-calling. He calls them names three times, and he calls them names that were actually a shot from Jewish people in, the, uh, uh, in Paul's day at Gentile, pagan people, right? And so it was interesting because they were trying to use the Jewish law to look spiritual and he uses uh, Jewish name calling to kind of rip into them saying, you're trying to act spiritual, you're actually not. You're actually the opposite. He says, you're dogs. Dogs was a pejorative term to, because they were probably trying to follow dietary laws and he says, you're like dogs that eat trash. Dogs was the nickname of male prostitutes in cult temples. And he says, you're trying to be holy before God. You're actually like pagan worshipers. When you make worship about obeying your little list to be proud of your accomplishments, it may look like the worship of God on the outside, but really it's a worship of you and it's something really dark and evil. So he says, you're evil workers. It looks like good. You, maybe you're in a church doing it, but it's evil. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. What does that mean? What it means is they were really prioritizing circumcision, Right? which was in the Old Testament an outward sign of my covenant relationship with God. But they had made the outward symbol so important that if you didn't have the symbol, then you're not really part of God's family. They made it a necessity to know God. And Paul says, they've taken something good and made it into a distorted way of acting godly. You've taken a holy thing and made it a mutilation. You've made it something awful. And so you watch out for people who will take religious practice worshiping, studying, serving people that's meant to be for the glory of God and people's good and make it about themselves and their own advancement, you be careful around that. You run. And then in contrast, he says of us in verse three, for we are the circumcision, which is weird. I don't know if you in church world use that very much. We are the circumcision. You don't hear that in a lot in songs lately. Why is Paul saying that? What he means is in the Old Testament, all through it from Genesis and, and Leviticus through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you see throughout the Bible, God saying what he wants is a circumcision of the heart, that God wants a heart where the deadness to God is cut away so we're alive to him and bound to him. What he wants is a heart that loves God. He says, we're the real circumcision, and let me tell you why. And then he says, because there's three things we do. We worship, we glory, and we place confidence. But look at where they are. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. 
We're not just doing external things. I've got to attend the service, give this money, sing this song, raise hands here. He says, it's not about the external. He says, we worship by the spirit of God, the very life of God pumping in our veins, calling us to love him and to know him. He says, we glory, that's the word boast. We boast not in what we pull off, we boast in what he's pulled off. How do you know the true Christian? Because they glory in Jesus Christ, not themselves. He says, we boast about him. If I got something to be proud of, it's not my perfect attendance or what I've got memorized or what I've done for this person or that person. It's what he's done for me and who he is, right? And I put no confidence in the flesh. I do not look at my accomplishments to verify me as a person. I don't. And then in verses four through six, Paul shows you why he has the right to talk like this. Because there might be some people who've built their whole life around religious accomplishment. They go, well, how dare you say that, Paul? I've done all these good things. How dare you tell me that these things are actually evil? What Paul will do in verses four through six and say, all those good things you did, I've done them better than you. And you see him in verse four. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, you're trying to come up with a religious list That as you accomplish it, you're holy before God. And so many of us do that. He says, let me tell you something. I did it and I did it better than you. And then he gives them seven reasons why he did it better. Seven was the number of perfection to the Jewish people. Paul picks that on purpose. He says, you're trying to follow the Jewish law to be holy before God. Let me tell you the perfect number of reasons why I did it better than you. And he gives four of them are privileges he had. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He says, you care about circumcision? I was circumcised according to the law given to Abraham and according to the Levitical standard of being circumcised on day eight. You guys came in late as infidels trying to suddenly be religious. You're trying to come in late. I was legit from day eight, is what he tells him. (laughs) And not only that, he says, I'm of the people of Israel. He said, I'm actually a Jew. I'm actually one of the chosen people of God. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And what he's saying there is, I know my family lineage. Because even within the Jewish community, who are the special people of God, he said there were some people that when the Jews were scattered at the end of the Old Testament, they lost their heritage. He said, but I didn't lose mine. I know my background. I know my pedigree. And not only do I know it, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the beloved son, the son born in the promised land, the line that stayed truthful or faithful to the true Davidic king. I'm from the line of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What that means is I speak Hebrew. <laughs> Since you want to talk about being intense on how to study the Bible, a lot of Jewish people had lost the ability to read Hebrew in the diaspora. They read Aramaic. He says, I knew it legit, man. You got all your Bible verses memorized. Do you have them memorized in Hebrew? Because I do. <laughs> he says, so you're all about Bible memory? I'm better than you. You're all about where you came from? I came from a better place than you. You're all about what you accomplished? Let me tell you what I did. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, in the Jewish system, a Pharisee was the best law follower you could be. You don't get to just name yourself Pharisee. Like, you don't get to just name yourself doctor. Like, Dr. Dre is not a real doctor. Like, if you're going to be a real doctor, it takes years of study. You don't get to just say, hey, I'm a Pharisee. No, you have to study, and he did, in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. He got the best Jewish training possible. As to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, persecuted the church. I was so committed to this way of living that I was willing to kill people, and I did. And then he says, as to righteousness according to the law, as to coming up with a list and trying to live up to it, I was blameless. I did it. If you've made your way of getting self-worth before God, your accomplishment of religious things, 
I did it better than you. He's telling them, you're playing the game at JV. I played at varsity. So you may have come from some way of doing religion where you came up with a list. We all kind of have it in our mind of the good people do these things, the bad people do those. He said, my list was the Old Testament law. It was a better list than yours and I kept it better than you. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, when you stack it all up and he uses an accounting term, whatever I would have put in my column as an asset, I now see as a loss, an impediment when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This way of doing spirituality, of making it about what you do for God, he says it's not gain, it's loss. It's a kingdom you build that becomes an obstruction between you and God. That's what it is. So a natural question at this point is, then why do we do it? Why do people do it? Why, when people ask about Christians, do they say, oh, they're the judgmental people that keep all their little rules and judge us for not keeping our rules? Why do they say that? Well, some of it's insecurity on other people's part. But some of it is a reputation we've earned. Why do we do it? He says three times, for confidence in the flesh. We do it to get confidence. We do it to feel good about ourselves, to get self-esteem. I feel good about myself if I can accomplish these things. I feel like I'm a better person, and I'm looking for confidence. I'm looking to feel good about me, right? But the problem is it's confidence in the flesh. It's not confidence in something that, that is ultimately stable or can last. And if you're trying to find your self-worth or confidence in what you can pull off, that's not a stable place to put it. It's not. It's not stable if you do it in religion or it's not stable if you do it anywhere. He'll go on and say later, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Some of you have done this with religion. Let me come up with a list of things to do that if I do it, I feel good about me. I got up this morning and made it to church, and so when I go to lunch and see those people dressed a little too casual at lunch, I'll go, somebody missed church this morning. Let's pray for them. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the people at table three, right? And uh, we can do that. Some of us, we don't do it in religious categories. We do it in other categories. You go, I've made it about how much money I can get and I'm good at investing. I can pull up on my phone right away how much money my money is making, and I feel awesome that I'm better at that than you. Not just good at it, but better at it than you, right? Or some of us do it about socially, what we can pull off, who knows us, who we know, right? We pick different things to make it about. And the reality is, he says, this way of getting confidence, we do it to feel good about ourselves. He says, it, it, it's shaky ground. Why? Because if you keep your list, what happens? You get arrogant and you become an insufferable person. And if you don't keep your list, what happens? You feel despair and frustration and shame. And for many of us, whatever your list is, you're constantly on that pendulum. You're looking to feel good about yourself in something that will never give you that stability, right? Some of you know this. Some of you make lists of just things to do in the day. And what happens? you hardly ever keep them. You make a list of like 10 things to do in a day. And what happens? Maybe you get to two. And what happens at the end of the day? You're mad at the world. And then you lay in bed at night and you go, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this done? I'm trying to get forward. I'm not moving forward in life. Where's my life going? And you have a little crisis, right? <laughs> or a handful of times a year, what happens? You keep the list. And what happens? 
you become a very smug, insufferable person. And as you lay in bed, you're like, Lord, I just want to pray for all those who are incapable of keeping their list. They need help, Lord. Uh, I just thank you that you've made me as someone who can just get stuff done. Thank you. Thank you for making me me, right? And uh, you become proud. But be careful because the pendulum's swinging the other way in a heartbeat, right? It's not stable ground. And Paul looks at this way of living, trying to find my confidence in things I do, and he says, when I compare it to Jesus, it's garbage. There's no answers here. There's no answers here. Alexis de Tocqueville came and visited America in the 1830s, and he was studying us. We were such a successful nation. And he said something about America in the 1830s that I think was oddly appropriate for our day today. This is what he said about Americans. He says, a strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. They have so much, but a strange melancholy inhabits them. And then his diagnosis. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. He says, they're trying to amass things to make themselves feel okay, but all I see is a strange melancholy in the midst of their abundance. They're trying to build little kingdoms and they can't get their confidence there. Lee Iacocca, as successful as he was in business, wrote this in his autobiography. Here I am at the twilight years of my life and I'm still wondering what it's all about. But I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. He said, I spent my whole life amassing wealth and building my sense of worth off my wealth. And I'm at the end of my life and I'm realizing I've done that and I've done it better than most men alive in history. And I'm looking and I'm saying, this is for the birds and I don't even know what life's about. And so here Paul begs you, those who want to come up with a list of things to do to feel good about yourself, look out, look out, look out. There's no life here. And it's not what God wants anyway. So how do you stop doing it? How do you stop looking to your beauty or your money or your religious attendance to find your worth and become a self-absorbed, self-righteous person? How do you stop doing that? Paul says it's nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. The key is replacement. Thomas Chalmers used to say it this way. How do you dislodge a beautiful thing from the human heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. That's how you do it. You replace it. How do you stop the craziness of this? You look at him and see that he's better. So I've told the story of when I was here at FaithBridge. I remember for me, uh, I had a, uh, I, I didn't want to date. I was in my young 20s when I came here as a youth pastor, and I realized, for me, I found a lot of significance in the things I could accomplish, what I could get done. That's where I got my hit of self-worth or value, my productivity. And so a girlfriend just seemed like a distraction from productivity, right? And so if you offered to me a girlfriend, I'd say, no thanks, which people did. When you're 20-something in a church in the suburbs, everyone's like, I have a cousin. I'm like, I don't know her. I don't want to know her. I'm getting stuff done, right? And uh, so people quit asking me, and they just kind of put the energy onto my junior high guy who was happy to do it because he wanted to be married. And he met a girl that's amazing, and he fell in love and was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting married. And I'll never forget, he sat down, and he told me, hey, we're getting married. And I was like, really? Are you serious? Let's talk. And I sat him down, and I told him, think it through, son. Think through all you're about to lose. 
think through all the freedom of stuff you can do. Like, I can go to Starbucks now. I just go now. You want to see a movie? Yeah. When do you want to go? Now. I said, I can just do it whenever I want. I said, you're not going to have that. You're going to go, hey, the guys are going to a movie. Let's all go. Oh, wait, hold on. Hey, baby, the guys are going to a movie. Can I? No. Okay. No, you guys go ahead. What? No, what's wrong? What's happening? I said, that'll be you. I said, and not only that, while I'm out seeing movies with my friends and hanging out and doing whatever I feel like doing, spending my money on whatever I feel like spending it on, you're going to be looking at duvet covers and how many throw pillows should we get and looking at patterns on China and all kinds of life-sucking stuff like that. I said, and then for the rest of your life, you're going to have to sit down and talk about your feelings and be like, that would have hurt my feelings too. Why did she say that? I said, you're just going to have to like engage at this emotional level instead of watching football. I said, and it's going to be horrible. And I just started talking to him about, and I was serious, like, think it through, man. Think through all that you're losing. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, Ben, I know all that. He said, I know all that. I know there's real loss, but she's better. She's better. He said, I measured them both and said, I would rather be here, even with the parts that are hard. And what Paul did is he said, I built my whole life on my little kingdom and I realized I was still empty. He said, and then I saw him and it changed everything. And the reality is the more you look at Jesus, to know him is to love him and to see his surpassing worth. And the more I see him, the more all of this looks like loss. Or Paul's language later, it looks like dung, rubbish compared to, to him. He's better. So for me, there was a season in my life when I was in high school where I found my sense of security, safety, and significance, and what I could pull off religiously. I wasn't good at a lot of things, but I was good at religion. I could study. I could talk. I could attend meetings. I could serve people. I could discipline myself morally in ways other people couldn't. I could fight off peer pressure. I was good at this. And so I did it to feel good about me. And I came up with a level of where Ben should be. And when I couldn't hit it, I would beat myself up for not being disciplined. And the scary thing about that is you can't confess sin. You can't find grace. You just work harder. And then you get mad at the people around you who aren't working that hard. It's a crazy system. But I was doing it because I was good at it and I got applauded for it and I wanted to be somebody. And then I read 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you can speak with the tongue of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you're a clanging gong, a resounding cymbal. And what I had done with religion was I had made it about things I could do. And what happens is when you make it about that, you're so absorbed in what you're doing to accomplish your goals, you don't have patience or time or love real love for God or people. And I knew that. And Paul says, if that's your life, you're a clanging gong, you're a resounding symbol. And I'm like, well, what does that mean in the original Greek? What's a symbol? You know? And I read it and I go, what that means is you're an annoying sound. You're not something valuable or beautiful. And that broke my heart. I realized I was building a little kingdom that will never satisfy me. I was basing all my significance on sifting sand and my heart was empty, and I didn't want this life anymore. And I remember telling God, I've been trying to build my little kingdom for my sense of security, confidence, hope. I can't do it. And I didn't know what the answer was. And you know what I found my freshman year of college? 
I didn't find a technique. I didn't find five easy steps. I didn't find a little book. What I found was him. I would read my Bible and look at the person of Jesus, what he was like. And I saw that when I was in the midst of my ugliness, when I had to face some of the broken, awful things, not just try to amass my good things, but really look at the broken, sad things in me and see that he loved me even then, that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us, that while we sat in darkness, God has brought a great light. That's what Christmas is for. Jesus' descent into our ugliness to love us, to be patient with us, to be gentle with us. When I saw that, when I saw him, I fell in love with him in college. Fell in love with him. And that used to be language I thought was weird to say. But I love him. And Paul says, the rest of my life is a pursuit of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The intimacy with Jesus. That comes from where? The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. How do I be righteous? Which basically means okay. How do I be okay in this world? How do I be right with God? We're so uncertain about ourselves. Rightness under God, being okay with God comes through Jesus, that he came for me. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. He beat death and I get to know him and I get to know what it is to resurrect, to not have my sin and my shame and my brokenness and my death be the end of me, but that I'm knit together with him and we go running into eternity together. That's what I get. And Paul says, I don't have that fully handled yet, but I press on to seize him because he seized me. I love that language. My whole Christian life becomes grabbing him. Why? Because he grabbed me. It becomes knowing him. Why? Because he came to know me. One of my favorite things about my little girls is I love that they want to know me, that they love being with me. And it's not that they love being around me because they know dads come up with a list of what good little girls do. And good little girls clock this amount of time with dad. They clock this many times thinking about the thoughts of dad, this many times doing the things dad requires. They don't do that. I'm not like that. What they love is me, and they know I love them, and we love each other, and that's where life is, and that's what God wants. He says, Christ came for you, and he loves you. You press in to know him, and as you do that, yes, you're going to start to live a way that would look like a list if we were making lists, but we're not. We're knowing him, and Paul says, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God knowing Christ Jesus. My life becomes a straining towards what's ahead. I forget what's behind my failures and accomplishments and I press on to him. He uses Olympic imagery, straining towards the prize. I fix my eyes on the goal and I run. Closest I ever got to the Olympics was the Mustang Mile in high school. We were the Taylor Mustangs. And for the football team, the Mustang mile was you had to run a mile in five minutes and 30 seconds, which I thought was humanly impossible. But the way it worked in football was you had a shot at running the mile in five minutes, 30 seconds. And if you didn't make it, you had to run the mile again and again and again and just keep doing it until you die or something. I don't know, graduate. I mean, it was just sounded horrible. So I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to do it once, let it be horrible, and then be done. And uh, I remember getting out there, and, and I ran the Mustang Mile, and I remember the first lap, my brother was inside the ring of the 
track cheering me on and I came around the first lap and he was like, you're on pace to make it, which just blew my mind. And so I'm like, okay. And so I went around the second lap and he's like, you're doing it. You're going to make it. And I remember that whole third lap. I was like, I'm doing it. I'm going to make it. This is so great. And I remember I made it around the third lap and I saw his face and he was like, what's the matter with you? Why did you slow down? I realized I was coasting victory lap on my third lap. And he was like, you're not going to make it. And I remember I was like, I'm not going to what? And I was like, no. And so I just took off running. And I just remember giving it everything, straining for that finish line. And it was the craziest feeling. I've never had it before since. Like literally parts of my body were shutting down. It was like the little guys, and they were like, divert all the power from the nose. Take it from the fingers. Anywhere we can get it, boys. Right? And uh, I was literally just like, get it to the legs. Get him across the goal line. And I just remember running, and I heard the coach as I turned the corner. 56, 57, 58. And I'm like, oh, God, please. And I remember at 559, I just I went for it, right? No. <laughs> and I made it. And Paul says, when I think about Jesus Christ, I want to think about that. All of my energy, all of me straining after what, Paul? Knowing him, being near him, watching him love people so well, watching him be tender with the hurting and the broken, watching him be stern against the darkness, beating back the devil and our enemies, watching him be strong and watching him be loving, watching him be my hero, and the lover of my soul. Paul says, my life's about that. I'm pressing into that. And my question as we close is, does that describe your life? Or is it about, I read my little devotional for 20 minutes every day, and I attend religious services once to twice a month. That's not straining. That's not striving. I'm not advocating earning. I'm advocating enjoying. The Christian life is to see him and to love him and to chase him until the day he brings us home. That's the Christian life. And I hope you know him like that. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord, I want to thank you that what you want for us more than anything in this world is that we would know you and love you. And in knowing you and loving you, we find the stability so many of us lack and we want. We find the safety that it's okay to be honest about where we struggle. But we find the hope that we won't stay there that you'll love us and your love changes us. It makes us who we're meant to be. Thank you that at the center of the universe, the heartbeat of God is love, that we would know you and be changed by you. I pray for everybody here that maybe they just thought religion was be a good person. I pray they'd hear today the Bible in no uncertain terms condemns that. It's not about you just trying to impress God with your list of accomplishments. That's not the goal. The goal is to be impressed with his accomplishments to see that Jesus came, what Christmas is about is the arrival of a rescuer, a hero, the lover of our soul to get us when we couldn't save ourselves. And I pray, Lord, if there's any in this space that doesn't know you like that, they could throw open the empty hands of faith and say, I'm not bringing you my accomplishments. I'm asking you to let yours count for me. Let your perfect life count for mine. Let your death bury my sin. Let your resurrection life be in me. Let me know you. And then, God, for those of us who know you and are Christians, I just pray, Lord, challenge us now. What would it look like to strain after knowing him? To press on to seize him because he has seized me. What would that look like? Is that what your life looks like now? 
what would have to change? Some of us know Jesus, but we're straining after a lot of other things and we need to stop and pursue the better thing. Lord, make us fathers and mothers and children and workers and students who do all that in such a way that we seek you, to know you, to love you, to walk with you, and in doing that, become more like you. May the world see people who treasure you, Lord, because you're worth treasuring. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Welcome to Postscript from Faithbridge Church. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the message by sitting down with the teacher of the day. Welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group Director, and I'm here with Bible teacher Ben Stewart. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks. Yes, so we continued on into Philippians, moving into Philippians 3. That's right. Um, so we're just going to jump right in with a couple of questions. Um, so you were talking about this um, contrast between true Christian life and pursuit of Christ versus basically boil, boiling down your spirituality to a, a list right. of things. Um, yeah. Why do we do that? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think in one sense, there's, it's helpful to make lists to organize what you do in a day. So there's a natural, healthy way to do that. And even in spirituality, I think you can. Um, you know, historically, they called them spiritual disciplines. It's a way to remember to do stuff. Like my wife and I have a date night one night a week. And it sounds sad. You got a discipline to go have a date, but it's just a way of securing it. So I, I think there's a way to create spiritual disciplines. I'm going to show up at this service in church. I'm going to volunteer on these days and read the Bible here. That's, that's good. I think the problem is sometimes what happens is a subtle shift in our heart. It's not even about the thing you're doing, but what is this becoming? It's becoming a way to feel good about myself that I can control. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately the problem is we talk about how much we love loving and relationships, but relationships are messy. They're a two-way street, and I can't control how you'll respond to me. Um, sometimes it's easier to just have something we can control. You know, mm-hmm. I'm good at this. I know if I do this, I get that result, and that result's good, so I'm going to keep doing this. And uh, rather than jump into the messy world of relationships, and I think in spirituality, if you look around the world, a lot of religious systems are just that. Follow these five points and you can check off that you're spiritual. And what Jesus came to blow up is you can follow all the rules and your heart be far from God. And that's a problem. And I was trying to point out as a husband, you could do that. You could follow all your little list and have a really unhappy marriage. And we all know that's not right. So I think the battle is not, should I, should I not Organize when I have my quiet time. Should I leave it flowing every day? No, pick a time and do it. But when you come in, I'll talk to people that want to read through the Bible in the year. And so when they sit down to have a devotional time, it's just about, can I power through this book? And you go, whoa, what's that time for? It's to stir your affections for God, to be devoted to him. It's not about, can you smash this Bible? Say like, owned it. You know, it's like, no, it's about what's happening. And so it's that subtle shift in the heart 
of I can control this, but that control steals the life. Okay, so I know why we do it, because I have a tendency to be quite the list maker myself. Okay, um, sure, what do we yeah. do about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, a couple things is one, I think being attentive to your heart. What am I doing in this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why have I attended church today? Why? I do this to myself all the time, you know? Why am I giving this sermon? Is this sermon about proving that I'm worthy because I can do something good? Or am I really enjoying what this says about Jesus and want to help you enjoy him too? I constantly have to return to the why question on my own, you know? Mm -hmm. So personally, I'm doing that with any spiritual endeavor and not just spiritual with anything. Why did I say that to that person? Why do I? And you can analyze yourself to death. Uh, but I think if you do it in the context of knowing I'm loved and accepted by God, it can be a constructive practice to ask yourself the why question. And then one thing that we didn't mention, but we read in the text is Paul ends it kind of in a funny place. It's funny because I love what he says. He says, if after he presents this whole thing, he says, if in any way you think differently, God will make it plain to you. So what he's saying is, if you disagree with me, you're wrong and God will help you figure that out later, and I'll see you when you get there, which I just love that. That's a great way to end an argument. And then he says, all of us who are mature should think this way. And he says, but let us live up to what we've attained. So he said, wherever you are in your understanding of God, your interaction with the Bible, those of us who know God know this is right. Wherever you are, he says, let us live up to what we've attained. The interesting is that word, live up to what we've attained, is it's the word march. It's a communal word. And so I think that's part of the secret for us is he's picturing a group of people. He says, link arms and move together in a healthy way. And then the very next verse that we didn't get to is he says, scope out the people who live according to this example and follow them. So I think for me, what I would commend for everybody listening is look around the people in your world that you go, it comes from a different place for them. They really know they're loved by God. They have that peace and they love him and they love people well. I need to get near that person. And I'm going to join a small group of people in a Bible study that, that are studying Jesus together and encouraging one another. That's where Paul ends it. Link arms and march together in, in what you know. And let's live into that. And so that's what I would encourage people. Um, and that's what I encourage people to as the growth <laughs> director. Yes, might. yes, yeah. I do. Um, that's great. So what about um, next week? Tell us what we can look forward to. Yeah, well, you know, we're obviously skipped big parts of Philippians because of time, but we'll, we'll stay in the same kind of area now. So we'll move into uh, the next piece where he talks about uh, anxiety. So just in time for holiday for shopping, holiday we're going to talk about okay. anxiety. Yeah. All right. Well, it was certainly great to have you back and looking forward to seeing you next week. And congratulations on your big announcement. Oh, thank you. And yeah. excited for the Stewart family to get some blue. Yeah, right. with all that Little pink. baby boy. Yeah. Come on. So yeah. um, we're looking forward to seeing you back next week. Thanks. And thank you for joining us for Postscript. Keep your questions coming. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org forward slash postscript.